Thank you to our worship team. Are they awesome? I love... That's it. That's all you got. Sorry, man. I love uh, worshiping you, and I love our, our team. And I wonder, have you ever had like this thought for yourself, or maybe you've actually had a conversation with someone, and they've said something along the lines of a believer, man, I really love my church. I mean, I love my church so much. Like, I love the, I love the preaching, the teaching in the church is so good. I love our, our pastors. They do such a great job shepherding us. I love our worship team. They're just so talented and beyond talent. They're just so gifted, like they're just anointed. It's so good. I just love my church. But I guess if there was one thing I didn't love about my church, it would be, I don't know, the, the people. <laughs> I mean, not all the people, certainly. It's just, you know, just some of them. They can just be so fill in the blank, so small, so ignorant, so judgmental, so immoral, so stupid, so whatever. Like, guys, if you've ever had that thought, like you've ever had the thought that Christianity is awesome, it would be totally awesome if it weren't for some Christians. If you've ever had that thought, then I have really good news for you. You're really going to be able to connect well with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and the issue that Paul is dealing with here. You can turn there in your Bibles. Understand that what appears on the surface to be a very kind of time-locked situation, something that could never happen today but could only be true of an ancient audience eating food that had previously been sacrificed to idols, like what seems like a time-locked issue is actually incredibly practical for us. Remember that 1 Corinthians is the gospel applied. And so as Paul deals with these issues within the church, he doesn't just give quick answers. Like, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? No, sit down and shut up. Like he doesn't do that. That would be the the first tweet of the Corinthians, not the first letter of the Corinthian church that has 16 chapters in it. Like Paul gives long answers. In fact, he answers the question today with three full chapters because Paul addresses the specific problem within the church. And then in answering it, he builds this theological framework Like he addresses the specific issue while at the same time teaching the believers in Corinth how to address future issues. And so in dealing with this specific issue, food sacrificed to idols, he teaches us how we as believers can disagree with each other, how to handle a disagreement, how to handle differences of opinion, especially in areas where there's not a Bible verse. Like, it's easy when there's a Bible verse. Like, you see somebody, like, holding down somebody and punching them in the face, and you're like, hey, the Bible says, actually, you'd probably stop them and then read the Bible. Or you find out that somebody in your church is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, you can go to them and say, listen, this is what the Word of God says. But what about those areas that aren't addressed in the Bible, those gray areas that are neither black nor white? You know, the issues of personal conviction or personal opinion or personal struggle. What do you do in those situations? 
like issues that in your own small group, like you and somebody you really like, y'all disagree on. How do you disagree without being disagreeable? And so before I read the passage, let me tell you what's going on. When Paul uh, starts this conversation with this church with the words, now concerning food offered to idols, he's actually responding to a question. The believers in the church of Corinth, like one of the groups or two of the groups or multiple groups, had written him letters, and in these letters they had apparently kind of given him at least six specific questions. And as we saw earlier in our study, remember, this is a really divided church, but in regards to this issue, there seems to be a division between two very distinct teams. Like you could call these teams the weak and the strong, right? Or the restrictive and the permissive, or to make it political, the conservative and the progressive, or if you want to be negative, you could say the legalists and the licentious. Like now for Americans, people growing up in our Western society, which is, you know, a very individualistic society. Like Western culture is kind of all about the individual. It's all about me, and that has a lot of negatives. In in an American culture, we would tend to side with the permissive over the restrictive. I mean, after all, you have the right, American, to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody. And so a lot of what Paul was going to say doesn't really make sense to us because it causes us to kind of step outside of our culture and let God, by his word, create a new culture for us called the church. That's what Paul is doing here. Like Westerners tend to see self-expression as the ultimate good. And so we tend to ask the question, hey, can I do this? Instead of ever asking the question, should I do this? Like the concern, you need to understand the major concern of the permissive party was personal freedom. While the main concern of the restrictive party was personal morality. And these concerns that they have, if they were left unchecked, if you didn't like say, hold on, what says the word? You know, what what says the spirit of God here? These concerns left unchecked and unchallenged would lead to licentiousness and the other would lead to legalism. And so those are the teams. Here's the specific situation. Remember, Corinth is an exceptionally pagan and immoral city. And the gospel had spread there, and the church was born. And this kind of sets up the conflict. Before the church came, it was all good. People just went with the flow. But now that the church is there, something is different. Paul spends 18 months planting this church as the pastor. Apollos comes in after him. Peter comes in after him. After Paul leaves, these issues arose. And here's how things worked in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a large metropolitan city that was filled with different temples to different gods. And on temple day, like on the day of worship, sacrifices were made to these pagan gods, these idols. 
And then the meat that was sacrificed, some of it was burned up on the altar, some of it was eaten by the priest, and the rest was either shared in a feast with the leftovers being sold in the marketplace. In fact, it would be hard to find meat in the marketplace that had not been first previously offered to a pagan idol. And so the Corinthian church is asking these, actually the permissive party is writing him and asking, so, like, can we eat this meat? Come on. I mean, is it really demon meat? Like it's been offered to an idol, and as a result of being offered to an idol, it's now somehow intrinsically corrupted, and I can't eat it anymore? Now, the permissive party, their response would be, hey, uh, we remember what it was like to go to the temple. I mean, it was more than just sacrifices. It was immorality. It was debauchery. It was messed up. Like I felt this, I sensed and felt the presence of like an evil spirit there. And you're offering this meat to an, to a, a God that's not God. That's not Yahweh. And then you're consuming it yourself. Man, that is, I mean, there's no way that can be right. And so they decided to avoid eating meat altogether and became vegetarians. Like I have to have a, like, God writing something in the sky for me become, to become a vegetarian. But these guys are committed. They become vegetarians. In fact, they could point to the book of Daniel and say, look, when Daniel was taken into captivity, he would not eat these, these, these food, these things that had been offered to pagan idols. Instead, he ate only vegetables. And so they would say, we're going to be like Daniel. Now, the response of the restrictive, um, uh, the permissive party was different. Their response was this. Hey, we know that idols aren't real, right? I mean, you go into a temple. Do you see something carved out of wood and be like, oh, my goodness, that's terrifying. No, we know it's not real. It's just wood. It's just stone. There's only one God. And so that's just meat. It's okay to eat it because it's just meat. And they could point to like the story from Acts chapter 10 where Jesus himself tells Peter that no food is unclean. And so they would think they won the argument. In fact, they may say something like, hey, it comes down to this. If God didn't want us to eat meat, why did he make cows out of steak? Right? I mean, obviously he wants us to eat meat. It's all good. Like, if I get as restrictive as you are, if I go down that legalistic path that you, I'll never eat meat again, that would be crazy. I mean, move that into modern day world. If everything the world touches is evil, even things that are like not even real, then I guess, you know, I can never shop at Target, never buy a computer, never order anything on Amazon, never go to a grocery store. Never get gas for my car. Never buy a car, right? I'm going to walk everybody. Certainly, I can't watch the new Thor movie that's coming out. I mean, Thor's like a god. I can't read one of those Harry Potter books. That'll mess you up. And so they're saying, listen, God made this. We can enjoy it. What's the big deal? And then Paul gives his response. And I want you all to stand for the reading of Paul's response in God's word Chapter 8, I'm going to be reading from the Living Translation. 
Paul writes, Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, so when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences, consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple and an idol, temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died, will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer the sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul answering this question, by the way, remember, he answers it in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. We're just going to look at part of his answer today. In answering this question, he basically says, hey, uh, I think you're asking the wrong question. You're still asking the can I question. That's not the question. It's not an issue of, can I do these things? You can do a lot of stupid things. Like, you can do a lot of things that harm you. You have the freedom to do that. Like, I can go to Chick-fil-A, not today because it's closed. It's the Lord's house. But I can go to Chick-fil-A, and I can order two Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches, and I can eat them both. I accept that challenge. I can do that, right? But is it good for me? Like, I can do a lot of things that may be, like, free to do, but that could do me harm. And so he says, you're asking the wrong question. He doesn't say, hey, you just do you. He doesn't say simply that, hey, you know, food is neutral, so do whatever the heck you want to do. No, his answer is, listen, hey, food is neutral, but we are not neutral. 
Food is neutral, but we are not neutral. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And he says, but knowledge just puffs up. But love, oh man, love builds up. Like you're focused on the wrong thing. The permissive party had knowledge of their freedom in Christ. But this knowledge had led them to become really arrogant, prideful, cocky, like looking down on other believers instead of moving toward them in sacrificial love. In fact, their pride had actually led them to go outside the boundaries, right? They took their freedom way too far, as you're going to read about in a moment, and certainly in chapter 10. But Paul is saying, listen, Christians are supposed to be known by their love for one another, not by their knowledge. You'll know that you are my disciples by how you can win every argument. No, by how you love one another. Love should be the foundation of all Christian-like behavior. The permissive party had it right, in a sense. Like their theology was right, but they were missing the point in their practice. They had ultimately an attitude problem. Their theology was right. Their reasoning seemed sound, but they had an attitude problem. This was their attitude. They knew better than everyone else. They were smarter than everyone else. Their data was more precise than everyone else. They had the facts and everyone else was ignorant and simple-minded. Like, didn't you see this as we went through COVID? How it divided families and divided churches and divided friends? All over data, all over information. People who could argue you in the ground and they had all the facts. At least they thought they were the facts. And you had all your facts. At least you thought they were the facts. And y'all battled each other No one won. Both of you lost. That's what's going on here. Like they're just battling for their rights to do whatever they want to do. And Paul's answer is, knowledge puffs up. The only thing you're building is your ego. You're not building the kingdom. You're not building the church. You're so obsessed with knowing stuff that you don't actually know anything. And so he writes in verse 4, Therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So here's their argument. We all have knowledge, right? Including the knowledge that an idol is not real. It's just stone. It's just wood. It's no big deal. There is only one God. So if idols aren't real... How can eating idle food matter at all? I mean, it sounds like a good argument. I mean, it sounds like they have really good theology, but Paul answers it by moving from God theoretical to God actual. Okay, you brought God into the the picture. Let me explain who God is. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You know, Paul adapts the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
He unpacks that and he adds a name. Did you catch it? Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. There is one God. Only one eternal triune God. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what do we know about the heart of God from the example of Christ? If Jesus were in this situation, what would he do? So he introduces Jesus into the equation. Hey, guys, remember him? Maybe we need to be talking about that. And then he answers this. He says this. Hey, you say that all of us know this stuff. Not all of us do. He says not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, a god. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See, Paul says, listen, you say everybody knows, but the problem is everybody doesn't know. Everybody in your church is not on the same page. Everybody in your church doesn't have the same conviction. They don't have the same background. They haven't read what you read. They don't know what you know. And for you just to bulldoze them helps no one and does not build up the body of Christ. Some believers who once had been so wrapped up in idolatry (laughs) that it has like this grip on their heart like they can't come to grips with this, the implications of grace in Christ. Like we have people like this probably in our small groups, right? You probably have people in your small group who they would never say it out loud, but they struggle. When one of you in the group has a conviction about a gray area, not spelled out in the Bible, and somebody else in the group has a different conviction about that gray area, and yet y'all get along... Like, which is right? Should we do this or not do this? Like the latest is, like I mentioned earlier, Target. Do you shop at Target with all the crazy things they do? Would you go to Disney World with all the things they do? Do you buy an Apple computer with all the things they do? Like, where do you draw the line? And some people say, yeah, I just, I'm not going to go there. And other people say, I'm okay with going there. And these people get along. How do y'all get along? Like, that's the weaker brother. They don't understand freedom. They don't understand personal preference or even conviction, and it messes with them. Like that's actually happening in the church to the point that they're actually being drawn into something they shouldn't do because in their mind, in their heart, to eat idle food is a sin. But, you know, that guy leads my small group, and he's eating it, and it looks so good. These vegetables, I mean, this is what cows eat. That's cow. Like, why am I eating what that eats when I could be eating that? And they step over and they violate their own conscience. Paul writes, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Like the permissive party is saying, listen, this is just an expression of Christian liberty. Come on, man. What's the big deal? This is no big deal. And so Paul responds, you're absolutely right. It's no big deal, so you won't miss it. Like, it's no big deal, so you can miss a hamburger. You can say no to a steak. It's no big deal. But take care that this right of yours, and he uses that term ironically, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Like, Paul appeals to their responsibility to love weaker brothers. 
He says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Paul wants them to think of others, to live for others, to consider others better than themselves, to think of others before they think of their own rights. Paul's basically asking the question, hey, what is your freedom worth? Like your freedom to eat that meal, what's it worth? Is it worth crushing your brother under your boot? Is it worth causing another brother, someone for whom Christ died, to stumble into sin? Like your dinner has the capacity to be a stumbling block, a trigger for destroying the faith of a fellow believer. This weak brother may start thinking that idolatry is compatible with Christianity and that I can have Jesus and I can have Athena and it's all good. Like they've yet to come to a place where they can say, it's just meat. It's just a steak. It's no big deal. For them, it still means worshiping false gods. And if you lead them into that, it'll result in them violating their faith, their conscience, and corrupting their faith and destroying them. Now, Paul read this letter, remember, to be read to the church. That was an awkward Sunday, right? Like you've already looked over it and read over it. We preached over chapter six and seven. Imagine sitting in that congregation for the first time when this letter is opened and they read like six and seven, all that sexual weird stuff that's going on in the church. And you're looking at your kids and you're saying, maybe you want to wait in the hall for a while, right? Then you get into chapter eight and the church probably divided down the middle, the weak from the strong, the permissive from the restrictive, right? They're hearing this, and they're like, finally, give it to them, Paul. And Paul gives it to both of them. You see, Paul doesn't want weaker brothers to stay weak. Like, that's not where they need to be. I just need to be weak. I'm just weak. That's who I am. I get to be weak for the rest of my life. No, you don't. Like, you need to be taught. You need to be trained. You need to understand grace, and you need to understand freedom in Christ so that that person can go out and have wine with their dinner without it rocking your world. Like you need that, but you know what? This group needs to understand, sometimes I don't need to order a beer when I'm out with them because it could rock their world. Like I need to show grace. Paul says thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when he is weak, you sin against Christ. Like lack of care for Christ's bride is a lack of care for Christ. Remember, Jesus said that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, with all his holy angels with him, he's going to divide the nation as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and he will say to the sheep, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was alone or in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they will say to him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you 
alone and sick or in prison and visit you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. See, Paul is just calling the church to love their brothers and sisters, to love the least of these like Christ commanded, because in doing so, you're doing it for him. You're making this choice for Jesus as an act of worship. And so Paul concludes, here's his takeaway application. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's example is this. Love trumps freedom. Love trumps freedom. It's not about what I can get away with. It's not about me saying, can I do this thing? Love trumps freedom. He would say, adjust your conscience. I mean, adjust your standards to the conscience of others. Adjust your standards to the conscience of others. Like when you're out with someone, do you know what they struggle with? Do you know what their testimony is? Do you know what their history is? Adjust your standards to the conscience of others. Like your standards, which is the application of your knowledge to the conscience of others, to the spiritual needs of weaker believers. Guys, that's crazy to do. This is a crazy statement. Like, don't write it down. It's just stupid. Who would do that? Like, who would do that? Paul would do that. Moms and dads, you would hope that other believers with your children would do that. We should do that too. Like, Christian love should be tempered, should temper Christian liberty. Because the exercise of personal freedom is never really just personal. Like we'd love to think that the choices I make don't impact anyone, but that's just not true. Love trumps freedom. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? Anyone anyone here ever in your life told a lie? Hold your hands up. The ones whose hands aren't up are just lies. These, they're all lies. You don't have to answer this one, but have you ever lied to your parents? That's messed up. Your parents love you and you lied to them? You're the worst. Have you lied to your kids? That's understandable. (laughs) They don't need to know everything. Have you ever lied to your spouse? Have you ever lied to God? Have you ever lied in church? Like, have have you ever lied to God in church? Now, that is messed up, right? Lightning is going to strike you. If you've lied to God in church yet, were you lying when you sang, if you gave your life to love them, so will I? See, God takes our word seriously. Like we all sing that. If you gave your life to love them, to love your bride, to love the nation, so will I. Like, what does that even look like? Let me just give you some application points and we'll be done. The first one is this. Understand, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. I mean, that's common sense. Put the hamburger down, (laughs) right? Not everything that is free is free. 
And so just because you can doesn't mean you should. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Romans 14, 15. Second, understand your freedom could result in someone else's slavery. Like maybe you don't struggle with fill-in-the-blank issue. It's never been an issue with you. It's a gray area. It's okay. But this person comes out of a life where they've been trapped in it, entrenched in it, and they see you exercising, flaunting your freedom in Christ, and it causes them to be drawn back into that behavior. Your freedom could result in their slavery. Like you grab a lunch with a bunch of the guys from church and you all just order beer without even thinking. Does somebody have a past, a struggle with alcoholism? Is this going to trip them up? Like we should not try to define ourselves by our freedom, but by our love. Number three, ask the right questions. Here are the right questions we should be asking of every decision. First, is it biblical? Like does the Bible address this? If it does, my answer is easy. Yes. I'll say yes to what the Bible says. Yes to and no to what the Bible says no to. Next one is, is it wise? Is this the wise thing for me to do based on my life, my struggles, my issues, my heart? Like where I am right now, is this the wise thing for me to do? And then third, is this the loving thing for me to do? Like it seems wise for me. I'm okay with this. It seems like I have biblical freedom to do this, but... Is there somebody observing my life that this could trip up, that this could mess up, that this could cause to stumble into sin? Once again, we're not talking about legalists. We're talking about weaker brothers, not professional weaker brothers, not people who just are weak and they want to stay weak, right? Paul addresses those kinds of people in the book of Galatians. He's talking about people who could actually struggle with this and fall into sin. Number four, maintain a mission trip mentality. How many of y'all have ever been on a mission trip? Like when you go on a mission trip, guys, it's like this. You arrive, like your feet hit the ground and you're busy. Like you're focused. It has your attention. You know you're there for a purpose. Like the purpose usually is to get the gospel out. Like I am here to make the gospel known, to make Christ known that that is my sole focus. But also, while I'm there, I seem to be really tuned into the fact that I have an enemy, and he doesn't want me to get the gospel out. And so I go into this with a warfare mentality that the enemy is there, and I need to fight with him, I need to pray, and I need to fight for my brothers and sisters on that team and be an encouragement to them. Like when we used to do mission trips to Mexico, we would start the week wearing blue bandanas around our neck because of the heat, because of the sweat. But midway through the week, we would switch to red bandanas because red was a reminder for us. Red means stop. And so when you see a team member wearing a red bandana, stop. Before you say anything, before a word comes out of your mouth, make sure it's fit for the moment as a word of encouragement. Because when you're hot, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, it's easy for you to be cranky and to be a jerk. Don't do that. That's a mission trip mentality. Guys, we need that all the time. 
Like if you're living like you're in peacetime, not realizing that you're on the front lines, that's just foolishness. You will be destroyed that way. And then finally, remember this. We are only able to enjoy our freedom because someone sacrificed his freedom for us. Paul drops his name in verse 6. He didn't want us to forget this. He wants to wake up these permissive Christians and these restrictive Christians to the fact that it's all about him. Jesus gave up his life for the weak. Like, will you give up a freedom? Will you give up a week of your life to get the gospel out? Like one way you can tell whether you're living a cross-centered life is whether or not you're willing to lay aside your rights for the sake of others. One scholar put it this way, it's in your notes, our liberties are ours because the ultimate stronger brother gave up his liberty to secure the liberties for his weaker brothers, namely us. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. For we know, the, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Guys, we're only able to enjoy the freedoms that we have because Jesus surrendered his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that even a passage like this that seems so foreign to us, so removed from our 21st century sensibilities, from our age, our era that we live, from our culture, a passage on eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols, even a passage like this, reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of this table of communion. It reminds us that we only enjoy our freedoms because you gave up yours. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be held fast to but instead he emptied himself made himself nothing took upon himself the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and in that form he humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross so that every knee will bow in heaven in earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this table. That's a reminder that you did that for us. You put us ahead of your safety. You put us ahead of your freedom. You put us ahead of your comfort. Lord, help us to be men and women who do the same. For your bride, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and worship and come to the table, get your elements of communion, and take them back to your seats.
John's gospel, he quotes Isaiah 6, that moment that Isaiah records that when King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were angelic beings that never ceased flying in the presence of God, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And John adds, Isaiah saw Jesus. Like Isaiah 6 is talking about Christ, the eternal Son of God who existed in the presence of His Father for all eternity was worshipped by the hosts of heaven. And yet that same son, Isaiah records, made himself nothing, was a man of no reputation, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the kind of person that people turn their face away from. Because all of us like sheep have gone astray, we have turned each one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. The one who is alone worthy. Worthy of worship. Worthy of freedom. Gave up his freedom so that you could have yours. Do this in remembrance of him. The one who was too pure to even look upon sin. Became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do this in remembrance of Him. So if you gave your life to love them, so will I. The Corinthian church had these two teams in it. And one thing they had in common is that they were both immature. The weaker brothers probably were aware of that. The stronger brothers were not. They decided they wanted to be known by their freedoms. Like that was the mark of their life instead of being known as people who laid down their life for their brothers. Like we're supposed to be known by our love for one another. The world should look in on the sacrificial love that the church like acts on toward each other. And as a result, know that Jesus came from the Father and know that we are his disciples. Paul's going to address some big questions in the coming weeks about how we can decide what's right, what's wrong, what do we do, what's too far. The first one is this, is it loving? Is it loving to those within my own family, within my church? Is it loving? We're going to be down front if anyone needs to talk or pray. We'd love to serve you in any way that we can. With that, you're dismissed. God bless you.